Good morning. Good morning and welcome to the uh, latest ESC podcast. Lots going on at Everton, as all Evertonians and many other people in football know. So I thought with the, the news of a potential takeover, it would be good to get the ideas of uh, people in the local media. So Dave Powell, welcome to the podcast. And then after that, well, as well as during, um, Tim Keach, Tim, hello from Market Insights. We're going to talk a little bit later about valuations and about some of the aspects behind um, what's going on at Everton and what needs to change in terms of recruitment and stuff like that. So uh, I can't think of a better person to talk about that than you. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Dave, let's, let's, start, let's start with you. For, for those that aren't familiar with you, do you want to like give yourself a, a minute introduction or something like that? Yes. First off, thanks very much for the invite. It's um, I'm a regular listener. Um, the insights are always excellent, so um, so really appreciate the um, the call to appear today. Yeah, I'm the um, I'm the business of football writer at Liverpool Echo. Um, I cover everything off the field, so anything that doesn't happen during ninety minutes, which involves money coming into the club, going out of the club. Um, that's kind of my remit um, for both Everton and Liverpool, um, both. Uh, major clubs both differing in their uh, their financial situations at present and the way things are going. So it makes for kind of interesting dynamic um, when when I'm looking at how I'm how I'm writing stories and piecing them together. But um, it's it's a job job role which is created kind of post COVID, but um, it's been born from the obviously we consume football 24 seven. We live live it, breathe it, and and more than ever. Football fans are becoming more attuned to everything that goes on around their club, right? not just transfers or, or, or the matches themselves. It, it, it becomes about the whole aspect of football clubs. So the money that comes in, we, we find that people are, have a massive interest in in kind of the game behind the game, I suppose, um, because ultimately everything funnels down into how much money you have available to, to sign players uh, and pay wages. And, and, and that is kind of the end game. So... It's. Uh, I think that it's the kind of role which you'll see more and more of. There's already a, a few kind of notable um, websites, which business sport business websites, which have cropped up over the past um, two years or so. Sportico in the US being uh, being a, an excellent example of that. So it, it's something which is only going to grow. So um, I'm hoping um, we're going to be kind of at the the forefront of, of kind of leading that. Of leading that. You're never going to be short of content while Everton are around. Absolutely not. <laughs> and Tim, uh, I think a lot of people will know you from uh, from social media. Um, an introduction from yourself, if you don't mind. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. So, yeah, my name's Tim Keach. I work for a company called Market Insights. Um, we've been running about three years now and started very much in kind of player recruitment. But over the over the years, as we've we've got kind of deeper into um, the industry, we've started to advise um, ownership groups on 
club purchases and kind of post acquisition strategies for these these clubs and there's a lot of um a lot of interest in buying football clubs around the world particularly americans are very keen and see the see the leagues in europe generally and the club prices as being much more favorable than the equivalent sized uh, sports franchises i guess you call them in the states so we'll cover that that area later but yeah it's um it's certainly a, an interesting topic and certainly looking at the, the valuations and and what why some clubs are worth so much money and others aren't is uh is fascinating and the more you kind of we help people with kind of footballing due diligence so the the squad valuation the, the potential of the, the kind of demographics of the area the productivity the youth academy um at the end of the day it always comes down to a football club is is, is worth what someone will pay for it which is a bit of a cliche but i think um as over the course of this discussion, we'll we'll see that um, there there are there are clubs that are, are worth the money that are being paid for them. There are others that are only worth it in a, in a massively inflating kind of asset market. So yeah, lots lots of interesting discussions to come over the next forty five minutes or so. I'm sure. Okay, I, I want to come back to you on on the sort of whole due diligence thing because I have some firm views as to why it's going to become more important, but. Um, We'll, as I say, we'll, we'll come back to that in, in, in a few minutes' time, no doubt. Dave, when uh, when the Everton season finished on the 22nd of May, I suspect that you thought most of your activity over the summer relating to Everton's finances would be looking at sort of what people call financial fair play, but it actually is profitability and sustainability rules um, and the impact that that might have on Everton's uh, transfer business. Um, obviously, events have uh, superseded that but nevertheless the those issues remain whether there's a takeover or not so um can, can, can we can we start there in terms of what your view is as, as to Everton's position because the club have, I think the club are being quite aggressive in putting it out there that uh, whilst it remains an issue it's not necessarily as much an, an inhibiting issue uh, as other people people like myself might think yeah, I mean, just to, to touch on the, the first point, when, when the season finished, it, the anticipation from our end was that it would be, a, the focus would be on how you kind of pick up the pieces from from the season that's just passed. Obviously, they've dodged um, what would have been a, a near fatal bullet from what would have been relegation, given the, the issues that they already face uh, and, and the stadium build that was ongoing in the background. Um we thought that was going to be how it was because obviously this the situation regarding how you plug those gaps with USM still existed. Um, obviously, a lot of players were due to contract big earners were due to have their contracts run out. How would that play out in terms of the market? How sensible would they have to be? But um, obviously, the takeover talk has now dominated the um, the agenda somewhat. Um, but yet, yeah, the the, the profit and sustainability um, issues um, they are, they are significant. For me, because ultimately it's um, not an awful lot uh, has changed, and this is you know this we the anticipation was um, it was going to take some time, uh, a couple of seasons at least, to try and get them back even to an even keel heading into Bramley Moor Dock. I mean, ultimately, obviously the the whole spend from Mashiri and how they got into the the issue in the first place was him trying to bridge that gap that exists between the the rest of the teams in the Premier League and the big six. But unless you have the, the revenues to to kind of back that up and match those, you, you're always going to be operating at loss. And obviously it's, it's cumulative losses of, I think it's over 370 million over the last three years. It's six out of the last seven years. Is it, I think um, 
loss making. So um, it's it's all come to a head. And, and, and as you've you've said rightly in, in the past numerous times, Paul, this is something which is not really a surprise to anyone. I don't think that the issues, obviously, the the issue in Ukraine com, already compounds a, an already difficult situation. But um, but yeah, this has been kind of a long time coming, and the issues are still very you know they remain and they're significant and. You've got Richarlison in the background. You know what happens there. I mean, will they be able to replace like for like for that kind of money? I'd argue not. Um, the, the, a lot of big wages have gone off the wage bill um, through Delft's exit, Sigurdsson's exit, etc. Um, but replacing these players with the the kind of the quality or, or the, the market hasn't gone down. The market's only gone up. It's like the housing market. If you're you know if you, you sell your house for a high price, you're gonna have to buy you know pay, pay a big price to buy a new house. So. Um, that remains for Everton, um, and which is why already this this summer we've seen, um, you know, they've, they yet to make any real big splash in the, the transfer market. Obviously, Tarkovsky looks like it's a done deal, um, but that's kind of going to be the the market that they're operating in again, and, and Harry Winks limped again. So it, it's going to have to be another difficult summer of trying to piece together a competitive side, but one that. Does you know improves on last year, so it's it's a tough task for for Frank Lampard. But I just think um, maybe the uh, it, it's become a burden of too much to bear for for Mishiri, which is why he's um, been so open now to to kind of relieving the club um, from his control and, and passing the baton on to someone else. And in terms of uh, Tim, I'll, I'll come back to you in a minute because Dave made an interesting point that I think you, you can talk about as well. But just in terms of um, the club's approach to the media and the club's approach to the fact that actually you know, it, it was the Telegraph who, who, got, who got the story and put the story out there first, uh, has yep. it surprised you that um, the club's me- media people and, in fact, you know the, the, the board and, indeed, the owner haven't been more sort of uh, coy and, and sort of tried to deny these stories? Um, I, I, I'm unsure on, on the whole thing, really. Part of me thinks it's um, once the, the the kind of the cat is out the bag, almost. There's been no no rebuttal from from what's happened, and um, the, the line we we the, the what we, what we're getting from the club is that you know, these these things are ongoing. They continue to talk, etc. But there's nothing more more concrete than that. Um, I just feel that. Uh, maybe it, it sparks because I, I don't think I know Matt, Matt Slater mentioned um, on a pod recently that um, there are others in the background, and I think that's probably um, the case. And I think they will be expressing, you know, they'll be open to expressions of interest now, and, and there'll be more US investors who, who see Everton as a as a, a, a valuable proposition because Premier League clubs of that size and stature don't come up very often. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think the, there's been no denial from which, which you know, there's been usually you get a shutdown of this quite quickly and a commitment to um, to what comes next from from Mashiri. Obviously, there was the, the the letter at the end of the season to fans, an open letter, but didn't really address the the key issues of what supporters wanted to see. It was um, it, it was it was fairly wishy washy from from my point of view. Um, so maybe you know that it, I, I think these expressions of interest. That they had from from the Kenyan-led consortium have probably sparked um, a number of other conversations from from other interested parties, and and that's why they're they're not too keen to shut this down just in case they they see where this goes now. 
Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that because I have, I have a view on whether there are other parties involved or not. One of the things you said in terms of talking about uh, Richarlison and talking about the idea that we have to sell a dispose of an asset in order to um, refresh the squad was that you felt that the market is still is still rising. Um, Tim, is that is that true across the whole market, or is it just a reflection of um, premium assets? Just as in property, you know, premium assets always increase at a higher rate than non-premium assets. What what's the general view as to the the state of the transfer market? Yeah, I, th- I think um, probably just during COVID and probably coming out of the uh, or to the, the reopening of football, there was a lot of talk about this is a new era for financial sustainability and everyone's going to be sensible. But it's it's really not. It's still um, you still have Premier League clubs and even more so with the takeovers of the Italian clubs by um, rich Americans and, and other, other countries with new investors. Um, there's only so many players on the market um, of proven quality and those players will always have uh, kind of higher bids put in for them. I think maybe the, the big drop-off is in terms of championship club fees. Um, very few clubs are actually prepared to spend any money within the championship, that kind of chasing the dream era of of big transfer fees for players in the championship has gone. Um, what I would say, though, is that wages haven't dropped off anywhere near as much as perhaps we would have suspected. Um, I think, yeah, coming into COVID, the first few months of it, everyone's like, oh, a new era of maximum of £6,000 a week in the championship, and there'll be a, a hard wage gap in League One and League Two at about two and a half and one and a half thousand pounds a week kind of average wage for players and that's been blown out of the water and even even national league teams like um, Wrexham and Stockport um, who had rich ownership are, are paying much more in wages probably more than league two teams now because they don't even have it there's, there's no kind of financial control at all in that league so yeah the uh, the out of contract players are still um, receiving a premium effectively I would say there's no such thing as a free transfer you you either pay a fee and a wage or you pay no fee and a higher wage because agents know what they're doing. <laughs> and they're going to say, this this is a million pound player. So take 900,000 and put it onto his wages over the length of the contract. So, yeah, I mean, the I, there are players who are obviously better value than others. Um, and there are strategies you can use to buy good value players and sell them on for more money, um, which I think it's fair to say Everton have struggled to do over the last few years. They, they haven't really had a player trading strategy. They've had a kind of immediate starter 27 plus year old players um which fundamentally doesn't work as i think we've seen not just at everton but lots of other clubs it's you you've, you've got sadio mane is a great example at liverpool what six or seven years of, of playing and selling for what he cost them so they've had all that value out of his contract whilst we've seen uh, um, players at Everton, Cenk Tosin and others who have come in for similar feeds and left on free transfers, having not worked out at all. So, yeah, um, transfer market is not dead by any means. Um, yeah, reports of its death are much exaggerated. So it's still uh, still lots of people with lots of money, and especially these new owners entering the the game. They all want to they want to make a splash, even if they talk the talk about sustainability and sensible and prudent things. At the end of the day. They're, they're excited about owning a, a sports club and they want to spend some money and do something fun with it. So still money around. <laughs> yeah. Just whilst we're on, on, on this topic, and we'll get, we'll get back to the takeover in, in a second. Um, 
Is there a trend towards players running down their contracts and but not moving sort of, you know, in the sort of 24 months or 12 months to go, recognising that if they actually see through their existing contract, that the financial benefits are for them to do that, not the financial benefits for the club to sell them with a 12-month or 24-month left on the contract. Is that is that something that, that, that's becoming more apparent? Um, yes, um, and I believe something that they've kind of borrowed from American sports because the, the reason you wouldn't do that perhaps in the past is what if I get injured in that last six months of my contract? So there's actually insurance companies now that will, for a premium, obviously lend effectively ensure the future market value of your next contract should you get a career-threatening injury within the last year of your contract. So, um, yeah, there's as always, there's always financial people thinking about ways they can get involved in these type of transactions. So, yeah, I think more for premium, like it's always been the case that um, players could gamble, could gamble their career. But at the upper end, when you're talking like a guaranteed £50 million contract, um, People weren't taking the risk, but yeah, the, the financial instruments are there now to to help players take that risk. And therefore, I think it's going to be increasingly um, common. As I said, you get the extra transfer fee money in your wage packet, um, effectively, if you go on a free transfer. So, yeah, lots of players are going down that route now. So, Dave, going back then to um, to Everton and, and where we are now, how, how did you become aware of the the potential for, for a takeover? Um, well, as soon as the the door was kicked open to um, from the Telegraph article, it kind of made a lot of sense because I went to the US um, during the well, just after the season had finished um, for, for, for various work things, and there was a um, there was some noise over there then that there was going to be some kind of investment. I, I wasn't aware there was going to be in uh, Everton. Um, it just seemed that there was there was likely more interest in. Uh, in Premier League clubs to arrive over the summer um, because a, a lot of investors are still looking at 2026 and the World Cup in the USA, the strength of the media deal with NBC, the fact that they, NBC now obviously have Peacock, their subscription service, and they, they basically have carte blanche to show as many Premier League games as, as, as they can fit on that. Um, and, and live content is the best way to grow um, a streaming platform. It's the one that drives the most audience. Um, so there was some noise around there was, there was probably going to be more movement. I, I, I didn't expect it to be Everton, if, if I'm honest, because um, I thought Mishiri would kind of, uh, through, I don't know, sheer um, just kind of bullheadedness or, or almost to kind of work his way out of, of the difficulties that they find themselves. But uh, And also the fact that, you know, it's hard to imagine he gets out without making a loss as well. So um, uh, that that was a strange one to me. But, um, but there was also an interesting conversation prior to the, um, to the takeover that I had with a, a an investor in in America who we're just talking about uh, the, the basic values of, of Premier League football clubs and they name checked Everton as being a club that until this season was seen as uh, relegation proof and obviously uh, US investors the one thing they don't like about the Premier League and, and European sport in, in general is the fact that it's there's promotion and relegation because. Um, you don't have that kind of cost certainty every year. You, you know, it's, um, it's it's not like baseball where you can have a bad season, effectively strip back the payroll and then um, kind of tank a season and then try and rebuild through the draft, etc. Um, it can be catastrophic to a business, you know, a bad season. And, um, but 
this was after Everton's survived relegation. They said the, the, the likelihood is that there will still be a, a viewpoint from investors, US investors, that Everton are still one of the most attractive propositions outside of, of the big six because they see that this last season maybe was their horrific season, that things can't possibly get any worse, especially with a new stadium on the way, um, additional revenue streams that that may bring, despite the fact that they're still battling with um, PNS issues, uh, heavy losses, um, and, you know, kind of a, a squad which does need a, a rebuild. Um, but they, they were still confident that, that Everton were one of those clubs that, that could be identified. But the first, I, I, I didn't think it would be something that would happen. Um, but it's certainly not this summer, but obviously the, the, the Telegraph article kind of blew that wide open. And I suppose it makes a lot of sense. But as, as we mentioned before, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine Mashiri getting out without a loss, which was one of what I didn't think, why I didn't think it would happen. Can, can I just touch on that? Because again, I, I have a view on it. Um, I mean, not quite clearly, he, he's going to he's going to make a significant loss on um, the amount that he's put in. I I calculate that with all the shares that he's bought, with the debt that he's put in, with the new shares that he's put in, um, he's probably put clo- very close to eight hundred million pound, including what he's spent on the stadium over over the last six hundred years, um, and that's just information that's in the public domain. You know, it's just literally adding up each time he's put money in, uh, what is the sum of that? And it, and it comes very close to £800 million if, if he met all of his commitments that he said he was going to meet the, meet, meet, the, meet this year. Um, why would he want to sell us a loss? Well, the problem he's got is that even after £800 million, he's still got at least another £300 million pound, pound to find um, to, to complete the stadium. He's still got probably another two years of losses to fund. Which you know probably are going to be over a hundred million over the, over those two years, and he's got to find an investment. Uh, he's got to find a route of of reinvesting in, in in the squad, which isn't easy because he can't do it through capital. You know he has to do it through through revenue or he has to do it through player sales. So actually, even if he t- ends up taking a, and I think he'll take a much bigger loss than sort of four hundred million. I think it would be closer to to half a billion. Even if he takes that level of loss, he's actually saving himself possibly 400, 450 million in future expenditure that he just he no longer has to commit to. So, in a sense, even if he makes a loss, uh, he puts himself in a much better position by taking the loss now rather than having to find the funds that he's committed to if he doesn't take the loss, if, if that makes sense. Tim? It does. You've got it's, comments uh, on that. It's it's probably hard to do psychologically, isn't it? I think it's. I'm I'm still persuading myself my Lloyd shares are going to go back to what I paid for them uh, many years ago, but it probably won't happen. Um, so yes, it's it's definitely um, it's definitely going to be a loss. Um, just fundamentals. There's 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 no justification for a value above that in any in any way. But I know football doesn't work on fundamentals. Um, what I would say is like we've we've done a lot of work over the last year or so and a lot of conversations with people who are in the market for clubs in that type of range and some have completed some deals recently and and why my my general view is like serious people you never know they've been interested in a club until they they say they've taken it over it's it's all NDAs it's all 
circles of trust and breaching those circles of trust is is basically you out of the, the conversations forevermore. So um, there probably will be there will be interest, but the serious people tend to also be the people who are the, the value investors and they're looking for that they will be doing their due diligence. They'll be doing the financial due diligence, the footballing due diligence, the, the potential of the, the club, um, the kind of macro economy around football. They'll be looking into all those things and they'll come up with a valuation and that valuation won't be above the amount that um, Farad Mashir has already put into the club. And that that's one of those fundamentals is if you put money and you spend it badly in any business, you can you can burn through piles of cash for, for no return. And... Um, I think just like an impassive observer of Everton's transfer activity over six years and the strategy that he's adopted would say these haven't been like long-term value investments. They've been kind of short-term sugar high signings to get everyone excited going into a season, but not necessarily with any strategy behind it and with the, the churn of managers and the directors, different directors of football and lots of different people pulling in different directions. You've kind of, you, you you don't you don't increase the value of your asset and that'd be the same if you uh you bought any business and you ran it in a way that was kind of value destroying so yeah he, he will have to take a loss um and that will be hard to swallow that you have to do it but i think fundamentally for for everton it's gonna it's gonna happen it's just a case of agreeing that a deal that works for both the seller and the buyer and there'll be a lot of negotiation within that and a lot of um kind of facing the reality of what something's actually worth rather than the amount of money you've you've put into it. Yes, I think one of the interesting aspects about um, people who invest on you know, multiple times so that they, um, they run their business or they run their career through um, transactions as well as growing companies, but, you know, um, M&A specialists, um, major and acquisition specialists for those who don't know what M&A means, um, is that they, they have a slightly different uh, attitude to loss than other people. And let's say they do uh, 30 big transactions throughout a, say, 20-year period. Um, They wouldn't be that disturbed if 10 of those or even 15 of those lost money because normally you can only lose what you put in. But when you actually do something right and you, and, and you gain from an investment, football is probably not, not a sector that shows that, but there are many other sectors that do. You earn many multiples of what you've put in. So if you get something right, say, in, like in uh, I don't know, construction industry, uh, even retail, if you get it in, um, in mining or telecoms, like, you know, they're, they're big investors in, whatever you put in becomes worth 20, 30, 40, 100 even a thousand times worth what what you what you put in, so losing say half of half of the investments that you make uh, doesn't really damage your long term wealth because you make so much more money on your good investments than you lose on your bad investments. Now people will say, well, I'm sure he's only worth two billion pound or whatever they you know the, the, the most recent figure is from Forbes. Um, the fact is, is quite probably not all the money that's been invested in the club has been his money. So we know that, you know, there's been a lot of loans that have come through Blue, the Alaman company, Blue Sky Capital, but we don't actually know who funded that. So it could be that Blue Sky Capital have actually got a group of investors that sit behind and put that money in. So maybe it may actually be that not all the money that hmm. looks as if it's come from Mishiri actually has 
ended up coming from with Sherry. And I know a lot of people over the years have said, well, clearly Usmanov is behind some of this. Um, I don't know whether he, whether he is or not, but what I do know is, is that, is that the, the company that provides the loans is not wholly owned by Fahad Mashiri, whereas the company that owns the shares is wholly owned by Fahad Mashiri. So it's quite possible that his exposure is not as great as, um, as it might appear. That's not to say that the other people still don't want some of their money back. Of course they do. But you've got, I think, I think um, the, and I've said this often, the club has been so badly managed and has fallen behind even where it was when he came in that the idea that he could get anything close to the amount that's been invested, whoever's invested it, is really one for the fairies. And I think the figure that is quoted or has been quoted in terms of, and you know, it's interesting that Peter Kenyon initially talked about sort of you know those ballpark figures of 500 million for the club and 500 million for the stadium. Um, the most recent article that came out, I think it was in the Independent. Uh, I just saw it very briefly this morning. Makes no mention of how much money is actually going to be invested. It just says that there will be money to build the stadium and there will be money to invest in the team. So there may already be uh, a drawback from from the initial position. And one of the things I find really interesting, and I'm going to ask you both on this, is there seems to be an idea that we shouldn't, um, we, we shouldn't, or it's damaging to the club that we accept a lower price for the club. Um, what I actually think the reverse, and I'm interested in your views on this, because I think every pound that goes to the shareholders is a pound that doesn't go to the club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, two hundred million pounds to the to the shareholders versus five hundred million pounds to the shareholders is obviously a a large difference in the amount that can be spent building up the uh, the capacity of the club to actually generate profits in the future through through increasing the revenues, through increasing the the uh, the ability of them to generate profits through our player sales and everything else. So yeah, I'd agree with you there. The the lower the price for the equity the better in terms of the amount of money that people are have left over to spend them. Other things that as fans, we, uh, we care about more. I mean, I'm sure if I was a shareholder, I'd be feeling differently, but it's uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely the case that I'd rather the money went into the infrastructure of the club than uh, the shareholders. I mean, I think the shareholders... Um, Sorry, Dave. Can I... But I think that um, it all comes down to, um, to Mashiri himself and, and, and how much he feels he can, uh, sell the club for because just just looking at uh, just as an example the MLS um, there were two teams sold in 2021 um, Houston and I think it was Orlando um, they both went for around 400 million dollars but that was 13 times I think it was 13 times revenue for Houston 10 times revenue for Orlando and the average value of uh, MLS teams is is around 500 million dollars I think. I think LAFC are valued a couple hundred million more than that. So, but when you you consider that um, the Premier League's, I think, second behind um, uh, Liga MX in the US is the most watched uh, football league, and the, the the betting market opening up in in major markets in the US is is something which is enticing to US investors. And I think material probably know a lot of these factors are at play and there are valuations there which you can point to um, and 
I think that it'll, it'll, it will embolden him to to kind of hold feet to the fire almost um, and and try and at least push the envelope as far as close to well, well with the added capital expenditure needed for the stadium as close to that one billion as possible. But that's not based in in any business in kind of if you looked at it as a business, it's just it's not worth a billion pounds even with the, you know the capex that's needed for the stadium it's just not i mean it's a loss making business which has a number of um issues uh that it faces which puts um breaks on its its plans for growth but i think just the market almost dictates these things doesn't it um it's almost a little bit of lasting first out type of thing it's it's so chelsea's most recent sale you you'd argue that they're not worth that um but at the same time, they've still got to invest in that Stamford Bridge Stadium as well. So I think that Michel will feel emboldened by how the market has been over the past um, past 12, 18 months or so um, to think that he can kind of eke out more than, um, than than that lower kind of 250, 300 million that the club may be worth. But obviously that in turn doesn't, you know, is a negative impact for, for the football club in terms of, uh, you know, what might be made available to actually invest in the squad. It's an interesting point you make because um, I, I wrote an article uh, yesterday that essentially said I, I don't think you can make direct comparisons between uh, what Chelsea has sold for or what you know part of Liverpool FC was sold for um, to Redbird, for example, or Manchester City when they sold um, to their various um, external shareholders. I think uh, you know, look, looking at it uh, as an observer, if I was looking at it certainly as an investor, I'd want to look at it on a, on a very much case by case basis, because I think there are so many differentiating factors in each club. And I think you've got to look at the, um, what's the motivation behind the sellers in the first instance, because that quite often drives price. Um, ideally you're looking for somebody that's in a position where they're forced to sell. And, and you might argue that Mashiri is in that position. One of the things I did look at and Tim, one of the reasons for, um, one of the many reasons for having you on on the podcast is how much uh, store does do people put in currently in terms of evaluating what the squad is worth and um, what the cost of the squad is going to be going forward, what the value of the squad is going to be going forward, and what investment is required in the knowledge of whoever the manager and the management team are in in order to meet their objectives. How much is that a factor in uh, club sales um i think it very much depends on the level of the club so the lower down the leagues you go the the shorter the contracts and the less valuable the contracts are in the playing squad so if you're buying a league two squad you will obviously look at the players and yeah if they've got a young wayne rooney under a three-year contract then obviously they're they're worth a more a premium over over a club with a squad full of veterans but in in reality you're probably rebuilding half your squad every year um and in two years you've churned it to a completely new squad um in the premier league and other leagues like that you might have players on six-year contracts on a hundred thousand pounds a week and then i think the fundamentals change in in that you're you're pretty much buying the legacy of other people's choices when you take over a club like that so if you look at look at the squad everton or any other premier league squad one one simple metric is just looking at the uh the signed signed contracts with the players how much money they're going to earn over the course of the rest of that contract same with the managers and the other kind of staff on over a million pounds a year you're going to be looking at that and you're going to say well actually 
year two, if even if we do nothing in year two, we're going to be paying out this much in wages. Year three, we're going to be paying out this much. Year four, five, six, even. Those are the commitments, commitments we're inheriting. So um, of the players that are under those contracts, how many of them are playing a significant number of minutes for us? And therefore, that's one of the, the metrics you'd use to judge whether they're a useful player to have in the squad. Are they playing? Are they playing well? Um, you can measure all that kind of statistically. Um, and then you, you, we've, we've got various things we do that kind of turn that into a kind of, are you above or below water water on those signings? So have you got assets or have you got liabilities within the squad? Um, and obviously that can all change. Players can, players can get injured, players can um, improve. So, but as a snapshot, as the club stands today, if you were to buy this club, looking at the squad as it stands, is there negative or positive overall value in each of those contracts? And, and honestly, you'd look at some clubs and you'd say, well, actually, they've got someone under a three-year, I mean, um, a three-year contract. That's another £15 million committed to that player. We've assessed the market value of their contract to be £20,000. So best case scenario, you can loan them out for twenty and get a wage subsidy for £20,000 a week um, over the course of their, their contract. So you're going to be eating £80,000 a week on that contract um, at I mean, you might get lucky. They might do really well at their loan club and you you sell them on, but the reality is probably unlikely. And people, clubs aren't stupid. They know know when you're a four-seller. They know that player isn't playing for you. They know that um, you will be just paying them hundreds of thousands of pounds a week to not be in the squad. So they will take that information into account when they're when they're deciding whether to buy or loan the player. They'll, they're not going to take on the £100,000 a week. You simply, players at that level are unsellable. Um, once they've once they're worth below what you paid them, so you have to very carefully examine the forward forward commitments. Also, as I mentioned, like is there a potential huge asset within the youth system who's under contract? That's something worth looking at. The age of the squad, all these types of things that you would look at to say whether your players are likely to increase or decrease in value. And it would certainly worry me looking at some clubs' squads to say, actually, I don't think beyond a few players there's much in the way of asset value, um, either as a, a, a playing asset to, to play the minutes at the good enough quality to keep you in the league or a, a value that you could persuade another club to effectively rip up the contract with you and sign a contract with them and pay you a fee for having ripped up their contract, which is basically how transfers work. Um, you, you will only move if you get paid the same or more as a general rule some players if there's a I think Mikel Arteta was rumoured to have been on slightly less money at Arsenal than it was at Everton so you do occasionally get players who for the sake of their careers will take a small hit in their wage Um, but the general rule is if a player's moving and he's going to be paid more than he is at his current club How how much do um, investors take into account uh, what they're likely to put into the squad and what the what they then expect from the squad. So, you know, in in any other industry uh, or most other industries that are not people industries, where there's actually you know physical materials or goods or even services, I suppose, uh, you're you're looking at how much do I need to put in and then what's the return on that investment. What I, what I'm interested in is whether or not people um, are going to that level. It seems to me that if you're spending half a billion pound or even a billion pound that you should do so. But um, for example, with Mishiri, there's no great evidence that when he came to Everton and his subsequent behavior, that he had a plan in terms of 
how much he was going to spend and what he expected from what he, whatever it was that he did spend. Yeah, I, I think. Sorry. Sorry. Um, from, from my point of view, I think there's a. Um, it depends. I mean, because if we if were to look at just just taken for an example the the, the Kenyan bid um, with uh, Kaminsky and uh, and Thornton, um, it's all about a lot of a lot of it is behind who who these people are and, and where they see these things going. So, if you were to look at um, and FSG, for example, when they came in, there was a clear directive there to to invest in in the squad over the longer term. But a lot of that being predicated on having a um, a best in class um, kind of data analytics unit, which ultimately would help them spend less money on transfers and remove a lot of the risk attached to to spending money on on transfers and over overinflated uh, transfer fees. Which, in the main, that's pretty much what they've done. It's it's kind of been the the cornerstone of, of their success but then you've got um but they are they're active investors i know john henry can be seen quite aloof but um they are active invest uh, active investors I, I wonder um where the kind of interest or because obviously for, for for thornton or, or, or kaminsky it would be the first foray into the, the sporting market and while i understand the um there's kind of a convergence between sport and entertainment and, and media at the moment which makes these teams uh, attractive to investors and, and, and they, they kind of look into that and how they invest in the squad is kind of based upon um, where they see kind of the, the puck going I suppose um, so I, I'm interested to see because how because this, this would be a first sporting um, property in a portfolio for, for, for either Thornton or Kaminsky I think so I'm interested to see kind of how they would approach the, the squad value here because it's I mean there has to be a strategy, and that's what's been so desperately lacking at Everton is a strategy behind how how that money's been spent. It's just been a um, a squad cobbled together for for enormous cost, and 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 there's been no value sought in that at all. So we only have to look at this season's um, disposals of, of of wages to see that I think in terms of transfer fees spent, um, it's probably nearing the hundred million pound mark that's just gone out the door for free, isn't it, this summer? Um, so I'd be interested to see what their own kind of long-term approach was to to how they tackle that um, because I'm kind of I'm, I'm unable to see where the the experience comes from that they would be able to 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 kind of manage that situation. Yeah, and from from my point of view, there's there's generally has been, and I think it's changing slightly now, but there has been a bit of naivety from some ownership groups about. Um, maybe a lack of knowledge of football at the upper echelons of these groups. They, they know, they know industry, they know business, they know, they know even sports businesses, they know, but if you haven't got that kind of knowledge that kind of sits between the ownership group and then the, the management layer of the football club that kind of can tell the board and advise them whether those transactions make sense or at least have a process. I mean, one of the, one of the things we do is is to try and put in some kind of process that the club football staff go through to to explain to the ownership why that deal is value for money. And that's that can be as simple as like a a mandatory checklist you do to go through each each transaction you make. So we're giving this player a contract in order to prove that he's worth the hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week that he's asking for what would we need to see we'd need to know how that 
offer stands within the market. So there's a, a layer of market knowledge you need there. We need to know whether the player's performances justify that type of expenditure or whether the the like-for-like like replacement is on half the money. Um, whether the management team of the football club have kind of signed off that they are aware of these the fact that this player is being paid more than the statistics would suggest his market value was and whether they are prepared to kind of sign off that they acknowledge that and they they believe they can improve that player by coaching and by by various other kind of physical preparation or whatever they want to do. Um, and just kind of make sure that all that is documented and signed off as you would with any kind of purchase, let alone one that's probably a, a 50 million pound commitment of cash over the years. And it's been it's been far too slapdash in football, in my view. It's been too too agent, too, too emotion driven. And just having that kind of layer of basic management reporting that sits in football clubs. Um, obviously, some clubs have it, some clubs have far more than that. But just that general all purpose kind of, are we sure? Are we prepared to say no? Are we prepared to say to the ownership who's really excited about this transfer, this is a bad idea? Um, if you want to go ahead, obviously it's your club, your money, you can you can spend it, but just <laughs> be aware that there's nothing that indicates that this is good value for money. And just that relies on having an ownership who listens to that type of advice. Um, and they, they do exist. They, lots of people buying clubs now are are coming to people like us and the other the other people in the industry and saying, yeah, let's let's actually put that in place before we start doing it. And some of these kind of large kind of maybe SPACs and hedge funds and people who are involved in investing money in football are the people who are more receptive to that approach than the kind of single rich individual who is just really excited about owning a football club, normally for, for positive reasons to begin with. But generally, unless they have wealth that's basically limitless um maybe like an earlier abramovich um who's prepared to just keep putting money in until until he gets it right um and also abramovich um has employed and deferred to football people um and again that word football people is very difficult because there's a big difference between having a an agent as your advisor and having a um maybe someone who's been an executive at a, a large club but does that transfer to to um, being able to compete against some of these organisations that maybe have like 20 Harvard physicists working for them in their decision-making process. And and I'm not saying you can't have someone whose general knowledge of football is enough to to sustain it, but as, a, as an investor, how do you know who to trust? The guy who's been at, at Tottenham or Liverpool or somewhere and put him in charge and say, this guy was at successful clubs, I'm going to let him be... The, uh, the football knowledge within this organisation, but was he any good when he was there? It's it's uh, it's difficult to judge um, from the outside at any club who was actually good, who was lucky, who was um, who was in the right place at the right time, who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's really hard. So my my idea would be always be process driven, always be kind of um, aware of what you don't know, and make sure there's some logic behind the process. And if you're getting things wrong, improve the process. Don't don't sack everyone on the first day and say well they got that one thing wrong so they're useless it's it's really difficult to judge who knows what they're talking about so at least have some kind of process that you can refine is, is what i always tell people to do the strategy should be a constant throughout however many managers that a football club should have the structure should be the one constant the, the manager should be the head of it that that steers the ship but everything else should be um should remain a transfer policy the way things are done 
Um, and that's just simply hasn't hasn't happened. Everton, there's been a change in in direction um, too many times. You only have to look at the different styles of managers that have been at Everton in a short period of time. You know, you've had Carlo Ancelotti and Sam Allardyce within um, a short spell of each other. You know, so it's um it, it's just kind of been slapdash really, um, just kind of firefighting it or, or just trying to make short term games when in reality there's been very little effort to to implement any kind of strategy, and that's what the club. Kind of desperately needs, as Tim says, you need to have a uh, have a, a strategy which underpins everything, um, which which is a constant as well. Because otherwise, it, it's just you, you're doomed to, to repeat history constantly. So, so much to uh, take from what you've both just said in the last sort of ten minutes. I'm, I'm conscious of time, so um, we're not going to get through it all now. But it seems to me that uh, Tim, you make the good, a very good point that if it's institutional money, so it's coming from a hedge fund or you know, uh, some form of investment fund. Quite often they're investing other people's cash, not their own. So there's a greater requirement to do due diligence. There's a greater requirement to do active management of what the, what the actual clubs are doing, what they're spending on, what the results of that expenditure are. As against, as you say, you know, just a private individual that's throwing throwing a load, a load of cash at it. I think, um, I think this, from what you're saying and from what is, is very evident, Everton, there's a whole layer of management within uh, clubs that's missing a sort of a um, that ties in what the football side of the operations want to do and ties in what the finances allow you to do, but also tie in all of that with whatever it is that the shareholder wants as well. Um, so like a like a an asset management sort of layer of management that sort of um, might exist in some clubs. Uh, it certainly hasn't existed in, at Everton. I, I suspect it probably has existed and does exist at FSG. Um, so that it, it keeps everything very, uh, very tight and structured. And there's a lot of reporting going on. And perhaps there's early warning systems that say, if we continue down this um, sort of recruitment strategy, we're going to have problems. Or if we continue down this route, you know, we can see some big gains in the future in terms of performance, but also in terms of financial performance because we can sell players. Um, really interesting whether we think that uh, somebody like Peter Kenyon, for example, uh, whether he... I, I've got two more points to make, okay, which I want to include you both in. So let's assume that it is Peter Kenyon. And in the context of what we've just been talking about... Um, I'm going to say this, Peter Kenyon's not had a full-time role in football since 2009. He's 68 years old. And depending upon who you speak to, the reputation that the man has um, is not wholly consistent. So you get, you get different views about his, his, his effectiveness. If two sort of you know, investors who'd never invested in sports franchises before came along and said to somebody like Peter Kenyon, um, you can run it for us. Does he have the, ne the necessary skills? Is he, is he sufficiently up to date with what we've just been talking about, mo modern practices, uh, to do that effectively? I'm, I'm, um, I'm not so so sure. Uh, he was, he was at the vanguard at Manchester United in the early two thousands and late nineties, and helped. You know, deliver a lot of different revenues there, new revenue streams that football hadn't previously seen. But I wonder whether he's something of a, a stalking horse for um, for uh, Thornton and, and Kaminsky, possibly at this stage, just opening doors. I mean, like 
uh, he tried to do uh, at, at Newcastle um, because I would, as you mentioned, um, I, I think it's a case of it, it's a long time to be out of the game and the game has changed in the past 18 months, never mind the past 12 years. Um, a lot of things are now in play um, that, that simply weren't considerations previously. Um, and I wonder whether, you know, if a, if a prominent role is, is, is given to someone like, like Peter Kenyon, I don't think that is a, it's not a progressive move. Everton needs to be pr- progressive now because, you know, they, they've regressed under, under Mashiri. Despite his best intentions, you know, I, I don't doubt his intentions to have, have made the football club and, and deliver it into a better place. And obviously, Bramley Mordock will, will be at least something um, to, to kind of point to that fact. But um, I think moving to a, an appointment of someone like Kenyon leading um, the the club, while he you know he he was enormously successful at United and he's had a, a long career in football. I just think the the game it needs a Everton need a fresh approach um, to how to do things, and they need and getting the right people in the right places is going to be absolutely key because that's that's simply something they just they just haven't had the benefit of for the past you know five six seven years. Dave, just could, uh, just to sort of re-emphasise my point, I know, I know you said that he's had a, like a long, successful career in football. Um, but that's a bit like saying Rafa Benitez has had a long, successful career in football. Yeah, he had a, yeah. He had, he had a period when he was the best in the business. As as you know, Rafa, my, Rafa Benitez might argue that he was the best manager in the business for a, for a period of time. But that's sort of some some way in the past and we've already experienced what it might what that might bring in terms of what he brought to the club when when he, when he was there so i i'm personally very concerned that um the club the fans uh, people who don't necessarily know football that well i.e. The, the two potential investors um they make the right decision in terms of who that football person is Tim, I don't know if you, if, if you want to make a comment on that before I sort of go into my final final point. I, I think it's it's really hard um, externally to to judge how good people have been. I mean, within the industry, it's always uh, you speak to two different people and about someone, and they give you completely contradictory views of them. So I've never put too much stone into that. It's it's how they it's, it's whether they've kept themselves up to date. It's whether they've they've thoughtful people who are always kind of reading and keeping up to date with modern practices. I, I, I don't know um, whether he is or isn't, but um, I think I've met people whose reputations externally are poor, who are brilliant. Um, so I, I, I'm going to sit on the fence with that one and just say, I don't know, but I've, I've met people who you would, whose reputation isn't great, who are actually, yeah, some of the best people in football. So it's, it's difficult to say from outside. Right. That's, that's, that's a fair answer. Perhaps I was being unfair on you, but that's a fair answer. Uh, the final question, I suppose, is a question of timing. How much does uh, the timing of um, the takeover, be it Peter Kenyon and Thornton and Co., or indeed anybody else, how much of how much does the timing impact what Everton can and cannot do this summer? And Dave, perhaps you can um, kick off on that. Um. It's going to have to be kind of expedited if the if they're going to make any meaningful changes. I think um, because as we touched on early on in in, in the podcast, that the profit and sustainability um, issues aren't aren't minor. They're they're, they're you know they're considerable. So it's um, there's a lot of managing that has to be done around that. And, and I think the the notion of um, 
major transfers this this summer, just certainly without disposing of, of key assets like Richarlison, I, I, I don't think is is possible. But um, and, and it just seems that I mean, how far are we away from the start of the season now? We are. Um, we're a matter of weeks away, aren't we? Six, so, six, six weeks away. Six weeks. So, so in order to tie up a, a kind of deal um, of this magnitude and then have time to go into the transfer market in a considered way, um, which is, you know, cause it's, say they, say some money was made available, um, Lampard wouldn't have had targets in mind for, you know, for, for, for more than um, kind of the mid-range I imagine for this summer. So you're almost going into the transfer market, just trying to, you know, you're throwing darts at a dartboard, aren't you, to try and make something hit very late in the day. So I wonder, um, wonder whether that there is a, I don't know whether there'd be a feel from Mashiri's end or, or, or Thornton's or Kaminsky's or Kenyon's that they need to speed this process up before the start of the season. I think it will just be something which, um, I think if they did, you know, if they'd look at January or next summer of, to, to make a splash, I just don't think it, the start of the season will will make this move along any quicker than it would have done normally. Mm-hmm. And, and Tim, your view, and actually a supplementary question to you, Tim, because you're the um, you're the numbers man on on, on this occasion. Uh, does uh, does a takeover of a club have any impact on? Um, the range of prices, or the, rather the prices of players both leaving and coming into a club. But answer the, if you can answer the timing one first and then answer the supplementary, I'd be very grateful. So on the timing, um, I think, yeah, I, as we mentioned earlier, the financial fair play is going to be probably the biggest determiner of whether there's transfer money available. If, there's, if they are able to I mean, I know there are good people there that will be doing good work. So they will have lists of targets and lists of players for all all, uh, all scenarios, I guess. Um, I think personally think probably the loan market is going to be somewhere Everton will have to look more this this window with those restrictions. Maybe you line the players up on a, a loan with an obligation or a loan with an option um, to kind of get four or five players who can, or three or four players who can come in and do that role for you. Um so, yeah, in terms of the timing of the deal, there's loads that I always look at it like the buyer side and the seller side. If the sellers want the best price they can get, there's lots they can do to increase the value of their asset. And that's putting in those those systems and processes and people and and uh, long term plans now that will benefit the buyer when they take over the club. So I'm sure the uh, the new director of football and everyone that's been appointed recently, who, as I say, they're, they're good people with good reputations and are doing good work already will be will be people there who can actually, um, yeah, start those processes. So, yeah, there's lots you can do to a football club outside of the transfer market to make it function better. There's the the, the physical preparation, there's the, the set-piece training, all of which we were, as a club, not that good on in terms of like injury recovery and filling out that medical department so you're getting fewer injuries next year. You can do all that sort of thing without spending a penny on transfer fees, and they should be doing that anyway and I know they are doing that anyway so modernizing the club can happen regardless they can bring people in they can do those type of things um in terms of does it does it alter the uh the buying and selling price um I, th- I think it's it's how many buyers and how many sellers there are for that particular player will determine the price really um you can play hardball and say you've just been taken over I'm a billionaire it's an extra five million pounds on the player but um any good club should have 
a list of players, not just a specific player they're going to buy. If you're if you're in a situation, I think we saw this perhaps under Mashiri in the early days where they got fixated on having to get a certain player to kind of prove how much money he was prepared to invest. And we saw very, 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 very inflated fees paid um, for certain players um, because they wanted them and they, they made it clear they wanted them. And I think any any club that's kind of smart with their money would say we've got four or five players that we we want and we've done all the diligence on them. We know they would improve our team and we will approach it in a business-like manner and we will make sure we get the best value we can out of the transfer. So um, in terms of selling, yes, clubs are always aware who the four sellers are. So if, if clubs know that Everton haven't got money and needs to raise money, I think that will ultimately affect the price paid unless there's multiple clubs interested in that player, in which case it'll go for market value because they'll be bidding against each other. Right, interesting stuff. So um, I'm, I'm not a gambling man at all. and um, I don't like gambling in any sense. But um, So I'm not going to ask you to sort of where you'd put your money. But um, in, in your opinion, both your professional opinions, um, are, are we going to go into, not necessarily go into the season, because as we said, that's only six weeks ago, but by the end of the window, say September or so, will, will we, do you think we will, we will be under new ownership or not? I, I think the club will be sold, um, personally. Um, and I think there'll be other in, interested parties in the background as well now, um, because it's this, this scarcity value in, uh, in Everton um, and, I think at the moment with valuations going up at present, um, a lot of interested, a lot of capital, which is, you know, US investors particularly willing to spend at present on European football clubs, um, probably paying over the odds of what the RXCR is businesses means that it's probably providing a bit of an out for um, for Mishiri at the moment. So my personal viewpoint is that, that they'll be sold. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd concur with that. I think we're going to see... Not just um, at Everton, but just generally within football, the, there's enough people interested in clubs. Everton is one of the biggest clubs in England in terms of support base, in terms of potential, in terms of like the, the footballing reputation of the city and the the area. Um, as as you mentioned, as uh, Dave mentioned earlier, surviving relegation. I think if they if they'd gone down, it would be a different story. Would be be talking talking like a rescue job not necessarily a Derby County situation immediately but I think within a few years you'd be having to bounce back straight away to avoid that kind of scenario so having having avoided avoided it last year I'd be by no means saying it's not going to be a struggle this year just looking at other Premier League clubs you always have to anticipate you might not got worse but other clubs are improving all the time and that the kind of the mid-table clubs are doing smart things at the moment so Everton need a strategy generally, um, and as I say, that can be put in now. That doesn't that doesn't need new investors. It can that type of work is a drop in the ocean compared to a player player transfer. They can put all those strategies in place. They can look at the multi club model. They can look at all the things that a football club can do. That's a kind of upper mid table Premier League club to to compete and to stay there because they it's it's not just a case of narrowing the gap to the top four. It's a case of trying to get away from the relegation places so yes it i think it will happen um who it is and and when it happens is is still uh still as i said earlier the, the really serious people you don't tend to hear anything about until 
and you'll never know they're interested if it doesn't happen. And there's a lot of those types of people in the football industry at the moment. Fascinating stuff. Um, gents, thank you so much for giving up your time on a Saturday morning. Um, I know you've got fam- you all got family uh, duties to do, uh, as have I. So um, thank you very much. Let's, um, let's see what happens and maybe we can talk towards the end, end of the window or when it becomes clearer as to uh, who um, who's going to buy Everton Football Club. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Thanks very much, guys. Paul. Cheers, Take Dave. Care. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.